one cannot underestimate the drive of a determined teenager with a laser like focus combined with passion and a pragmatism well beyond his years uddesh nigam mapped out a seemingly unconventional route to getting a degree in economics outside india and for a price he could afford hello and welcome to this episode of college matters alma matters Udesh's journey takes him from Bokaro Steel City in India to Sciences Po in France, Emory University in the United States, and a final semester of internship in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Udesh Nigam is joining us now to tell his story. So without further delay, let's catch up with Udesh. me first start by welcome you welcoming you to our podcast college matters alma matters so um yeah we good yeah. to have a nice conversation on the last few years um your undergraduate years at sciences po and then emory and then hopefully a little bit of um uh, insight into your internship at buenos aires so um sure So good. So maybe uh we can kick it off by um just uh, if you can talk about your overall experience um as you look back what you liked mm-hmm. what was not that great but what your overall take away from that was. Sure. So like firstly like thanks for having me. Sure. Uh and talking about the experiences like it it kind of really dates back uh before i even uh, decided to pursue my undergrad outside india mm-hmm. that would be like back in 2012 or something mm-hmm. so quite quite long back and i decided that i don't want to pursue any of the econ courses uh, i mean any of the econ degrees offered here mm-hmm. so i decided to like apply apply to universities abroad and uh like the first thing is when whenever you think about like going abroad the first two countries that come to your mind are the US and the UK mm-hmm. so i i was looking at the university of chicago and a few other schools in the uk uh but i felt like well uh even these schools are great uh mm-hmm. they are quite expensive in terms of you know tuition mm-hmm. living costs mm-hmm. everything mm-hmm. and the scholarships are pretty much uh non guaranteed so time went by i had to of course convince my parents mm-hmm. about because that this is not a very common idea or this yeah. is not a very common track to follow so and especially coming from the city where i come from it's it's not like it's it's not it doesn't even exist at all so mm-hmm. that's how we can put it forth so there there are no counselors and no, there's no guidance and nothing so it all started there back in 2012 uh doing my own research day and night and then finally i came to realize that there are schools in europe mm-hmm. uh where i would like to go um but apart from that i also applied to schools in asia especially hong kong Uh, mm-hmm. HKU University. I had offers from both, but they were without scholarships. So I decided that's not really affordable. So I I decided to stick with the idea of pursuing a bachelor's in France because mm-hmm. by the time I made this decision, most of the 
application cycles for uh, the UK are like already long gone. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so that, that that's a problem. That was a problem. And uh, also I realized after uh, Donald Trump came to power, I realized that the new president wouldn't probably be a very uh, welcoming, you know, <laughs> uh, like a very welcoming person in terms of uh, my career opportunities after four years. Like it's pretty, pretty uncertain. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I decided I decided not to pursue any plans in the U.S. because, again, finance and and the returns on finance, you know, mm-hmm. like, sort of like that. So uh, I started applying to French schools. Uh, mm-hmm. The two schools uh, that were on my radar were Sciences Po and ESSEC Business School. Mm-hmm. But I primarily wanted to study economics. I didn't want to really, you know, concentrate myself to business. So mm-hmm. I decided to, like, accept the offer. I actually ended up getting an offer. Sciences Po fell well within my budget as well. And there were various scholarship options that I took advantage of. So, yes, uh, yeah, it, it it started that way, quite, quite a long journey, but yeah, that's how I ended up. And along the way, of course, there were difficulties convincing others that you have a plan at hand and then you are not just straying about anywhere. Uh-huh. And yes, I mean, the usual difficulties, you know, that come with it in terms of getting a bigger exposure uh, relative to where you come from. So. arrive at Sciences Po and um, yeah. tell us a little bit about that, the transition from Bocaro to Paris, um, mm-hmm. that transition and, you know, adjusting to sort of life in yeah. Paris. Yeah. So uh, before I left uh, India, I signed up for this uh, Pahi Walkers. So it's like Paris walkers in English. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. this is a this is a uh, how can I put it forth? It's um, a tour guide, but it's it's it doesn't really cost anything. So it's like free of cost. So uh-huh. the people who are from the uh, Paris region, like the Ile de France, they are they are they act like volunteers, and uh, it's may it, it mainly comprises people who are well beyond their fifties or something who sure. have some spare time. So I signed up for one of them. I was paired with a volunteer. He was a pretty nice guy. He was a UK French citizen, uh-huh. dual citizenship. And uh, he offered me to, like, you know, basically take me around Paris and, like, show what Paris had to offer. Uh-huh. And, and I was like, yeah, like that, that would be a great idea. And, uh, yeah, of course, he was quite welcoming. He even arrived at the airport uh, to take me forth. So I wouldn't really say that it was way like it, it was quite difficult after i arrived at the airport because uh-huh. once i stepped out the aircraft it was like i mean where am i so <laughs> so that was like uh, re- really i mean i was kind of very nervous and but then yeah he did come and we went like we used public transportation to reach my hotel and i do have fond memories how i took my first steps on the streets and realized this is an altogether different world, uh-huh. different culture and everything. I mean, that being my first time outside India. So, uh, yes, I mean, the entrance was quite beautiful, to put it forth. But yeah. I went by and I traveled to Luav. I found 
of course, the school that I had come to was more of a political science school mm-hmm. uh, and an econ school. Mm-hmm. So students were mainly interested in talking to you about politics or, you know, constitutional law or something along those lines. Sure. So, uh, I thought, well, am I at the wrong place? So that, that was a kind of apprehension I had in uh-huh. my first year. Uh-huh. But then it then it then turned it then, it then it then turned more into a I would say surety that it wasn't that bad after all, because one way to look at it would be I was getting an opportunity to like study I mean a lot of different domains like, yeah. you know like study through everything, and and that was like one of the main reasons as well why I had come to Sionspo. It wasn't just because of econ. I wanted to test it out if I was interested in something else aside yeah. from econ and John uh, spoke very beautifully provided that uh, platform to study not only entrepreneurship but also constitutional law, political science uh, sociology and so on and so forth so yeah there were quite a number of diverse subjects on offer but again as I said the community was more of uh, you know, like politically motivated. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really uh, interested in economics. So I had quite some, uh, I mean, some of a difficult time in establishing the finance and investment club. <laughs> I do remember people would just come and shout that this is meant for the bourgeoisie or, you know, <laughs> the, <laughs> the capitalists and these ideas cannot exist. Uh, I mean, all of this was not pretty serious. Like it was for fun. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Of course, you you kind of you kind of get a sense that people are like really really left wing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how how I felt it, which is not wrong. I respect various ideologies, but again, at the end of the day, if you're looking to having forth like economically motivated discussions, if you want discussions about finance or something along those lines, then probably like Sonspo would not be a really, really good choice. Yeah. I, I guess there are better universities out there. But then again, if you want to try out international relations or political science or something, there are a lot of people who are on campus who would like to talk to you about these issues. They come from like the diverse regions of Europe. From I mean, I mean especially the Luav campus where I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had quite a few students from Asia. You had a few students from the U.S., mm-hmm. but I guess like it was pretty low in number. I mean, you had you had you had a student from Australia and so on and so forth. So, the the thing being that if you want to have a solid discussion uh, or let's say a profound discussion over these subjects, then Sciencebo is like quite a close knit community and an amazing place to be in. Yeah, to be in. So what um, about the, you know, language and all that on campus? Mm-hmm. What, what was the, did people speak English or did you all speak French or how, how did that adjustment right. go? So that, that's a very good question. So, of course, when you, when you are out on the streets, you do not yeah. really expect anyone to speak English, right? So yeah. the language of communication outside was, of course, French. Now, coming to the campus, as I said, it was quite international. But yeah. even though being international, there was a 
visible segregation, I would say, between the French people and the non-French people. Uh-huh. So, especially, like, you could see that. Uh, I mean, the French people would tend to stick around in groups of yeah. just, like, French people or other Europeans who would speak French at a fluent level. So that would be probably from Belgium and so, mm-hmm. or probably Switzerland or Belgium. So, like, the communication used to be in French amongst them. And for the non-French people, they would either stick around in groups of Japanese, Chinese or something. And of course, at times, the language of communication was in their uh, natural or uh, like in their mother tongue, right? Mm-hmm. So, but having said that, uh, when, when it came to discussions, when it came to like uh, social meetings or uh, club meetings or whatever, the medium of communication was, of course, English. Okay. Um, but but yeah, I mean, you could you could notice that segregation, and I guess it's true throughout France, whether it be in bachelor's, master's, or PhD. So yeah. Tell us a little bit about your transition from an academic point of view, from high school to mm-hmm. your first uh, were the semesters or quarters? Were the semesters? The first few semesters. So, yeah, I mean, we had like four semesters over two years. So, yeah, it yeah. was on a semester-based system. Okay. So, yeah. So, from that to the f- high school to first semester, mm-hmm. how was that, academically speaking? Uh, initially, it seemed to be quite easy, mm-hmm. though it was more of a, I mean, it was an illusion, I would say, mm-hmm. because uh, we used to think like, you know, when we come from ISC or ICSC backgrounds, yeah. we think that. Our education system is indeed the toughest or the most challenging you could find. Mm-hmm. And uh, outside India, it's relatively easy, mm-hmm. but that's not the case. Even it might seem so yeah. in the first few days. So, like when we had the first week of classes, uh, especially when it came to quantitative methods or uh, even like sociology or constitutional law or economics, it it seemed basic. Um, I would say economics wasn't really hard for me mm-hmm. because uh, I most most of those concepts back in uh, high school. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it wasn't difficult. But constitutional law was something which everyone was almost afraid of. It covered a lot of uh, EU policies and like uh, I mm-hmm. mean, legal policy mm-hmm. memorandums of the entire continent of Europe in quite some detail. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean that 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 was the subject. Like everyone's one was like scared of, even people who would pursue it later on. So it was that scary. <laughs> um, but yeah, if if you talk about the other subjects, they were not that uh, you know time consuming. Yeah, and that was true for the first few weeks. But it was only until the midterms we realized that questions can be really really thought provoking. Yeah, even though the syllabus might seem a little easy and that is when we were like brought to our you know base realization that if you don't really study hard and by studying hard I don't just mean like grasping everything on paper and on the slides but having a sound you know foundation of the concepts Mm -hmm. and being able to reason your way through different sorts of questions in a time-bound test-taking environment if you're not able to do that you can actually end up failing the tests and the exams. Mm. So um, 
it, it, it was quite a shock when few people actually ended up failing. They thought that they were quite fine with it. But then when it comes to the French way of writing, like, the, you know, the French people have more of a dissertation kind of thing. So, I mean, in English, it's the same word, like yeah. dissertation. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, they, they, they are like, they really want you to frame a thought-provoking question that can be answered in the next six or seven pages and yeah. by six or seven pages I just don't mean like filling pages but having a sound um, framework of your answer that yeah. could address every key concept revolving around that question and that's pretty challenging in a time-bound environment yeah. so uh, yeah people did feel that brunt more or less but eventually you end up getting used to it but of course it was quite a different system here uh, we had never experienced something like this before. Yeah. So, how were um, how did you find your classmates? What were the caliber of the students? Um, mm-hmm. What you know, and obviously, different students. You know, students from different regions. Give, give me a feel for what it was like. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, here I would like to divide the answer in two parts, the French yeah. students and the non-French people. Mm-hmm. So the reason why I'm dividing the answer in two parts is because the French people are admitted via a different admissions track. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's a PEPA, which is like uh, a competitive exam that mm-hmm. helps you get into like, top schools and social sciences. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, after like, uh, you know, like getting through that, they have a very rigorous interview process. Mm-hmm. Um, so like for French people, it's relatively more of a struggle, I guess, mm-hmm. to be really fair. So um, they, of course, knew the methodologies and everything. So they used to be a little, you know, kind of confident mm-hmm. around themselves. Yeah. Um, because they used to also score well, uh, I mean, across all the subjects. So... They, they, they used to be, uh, yeah, they used to be a real, little confident around themselves. You know, they have that elite thing about clearing the PEPA and now finally getting it here. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was one thing. But having said that, some of the French people were really nice mm-hmm. to us. And uh, they used to integrate pretty well. Uh, talking about the international students, we had almost like the same admissions process. Mm -hmm. So depending on your countries. So yeah, it it doesn't really matter uh, what country or continent we come from. And uh, these students were more of like the humble kind, Mm -hmm. I would would say. Mm -hmm. And quite friendly, uh, integration with international students is way easier than, you know, integrating with the French. Mm -hmm. And saying that integrating with the French is necessarily difficult. If you speak the language, that would make it like way, way easier. Yeah. And it would be a smoother transition. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that was one thing. And, uh, of course, uh, French people have a way of celebrating everything, you know, in a sort of a different way. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very jovial and it's very, uh, like, you know, like they know how to have fun when they're having fun. You can pretty much say that they are having fun. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, 
it's it's sort of a cultural difference as well yeah uh, and initially i would say i kind of found it a little out of place mm-hmm. but then i eventually started you know integrating and present and transitioning in so in in terms of uh, the general behavior everyone was quite cooperative in terms of caliber everyone was quite talented mm-hmm. there was no one foolish is you know like it's a very competitive process and even for internationals they don't just take anyone so everyone excelled at their high school they had positions of leadership and students knew how to take initiatives uh, we had this uh, annual voting session where you can pitch in ideas for a new initiative you wish to take mm-hmm. that will be legally registered and recognized as a club or something so yeah quite organized quite um you know like quite systematic in terms of uh, how you could start something but ultimately i would say yeah the students definitely had a high caliber both in terms of academics and extracurriculars how how big were these classes how many students were there for example in your year when you joined mm-hmm. so i guess i don't really remember the exact figure but this would somewhere be around uh 200 250 maybe okay. or am i really overestimating maybe it's it, it will be somewhere between 100 to like 200 or 250 okay. something like that okay or yeah probably it's between 100 to 120 uh, i think i'm overestimating yeah so um a pretty yeah, it, it's a, it's a pretty small like school in terms of size and which is why i said earlier it's a it's a very close knit community um but when you talk and, about classes yeah yeah no no go ahead so when you talk about classes it, it yeah it 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 really depends like uh, what type of class you're referring to when it comes to a lecture of course uh, we would be around 80 or 90 students in one hall mm-hmm. especially in our first years when everyone was studying everything um and then later for the seminars which we used to have in class it would be around at the most 10 to 15 students okay okay and what percentage of the students were international versus you know from france i mean what was roughly the split you think i think it would be quite a high percentage of uh, international students okay. by proportion um I, i would even like make it around 85 percent of internationals and 15 percent like oh, wow. French. Okay, wow. Okay, so how are the, how are the teaching? How are the lectures and what is the quality of mm-hmm. teaching? Now, the teachers who used to come here were highly qualified professionals. Mm-hmm. And by that, I don't just mean the degrees, but also their you know practices for example if uh, we had someone from constitutional law mm-hmm. she used to be like the one who would draft constitutions for different countries used to work across high level legal boards mm-hmm. and you know like people people who were, who have a really high profile sure so uh, yeah again as i said it's mostly a political science and international relations based school so it had a faculty who were equally talented to you know stand by that recognition um 
but that doesn't mean that economics or, or like social sciences like sociology do not have that nice of a reputation um i would say it was a little lesser but even then we had like pretty good teachers in terms of uh, explanation however they would engage with you in class mm-hmm. how they would explain things to you and their availability is both class hours so um i don't think we had this concept of office hours as frequently as you have it in the us okay. though i i still think like teachers sometimes used to give give time uh, but most of our communication was email based and the questions would be like taken forth uh, either in the next class or if there was really like high demand then the questions would be aggregated and the professors make time for officers so yeah let's segue to you know life on campus um mm-hmm. talk a little bit about the living quarters the food and the social activities right so in terms of food on campus we did not really have a restaurant uh quite a few schools in the united states have yeah uh we just had a small lunch room which was like mostly for purchasing coffee and like something from vending machines mm-hmm. um in terms of residence i was quite lucky to have this uh, residence which was basically a 3 minute walk away mm-hmm. from the campus uh not quite big you were allocated um i would say separate rooms mm-hmm. and these were like single occupancy rooms mm-hmm. um though i guess people some people used to like i mean live as a double occupancy but then i'm not very sure it was mostly single occupancy for people from our school and this was a government residence uh, which is known as a cous c r o u s in in france and uh, these residences were like rented out to different schools mm-hmm. so for example we had like two or three other schools uh in luaf mm-hmm. so students of these schools as well used to live there now in terms of like integration in residence halls it was nothing of the sort that i had experienced in the us okay. so people used to live like just to themselves or if you had friends who lived in the same residence that would be it so yeah i mean you don't like mingle Uh, different people i see I, i don't know why but yeah so is there a campus uh, um, i mean so there are there social activities on campus or so was this mm-hmm. a campus campus or was this sort of in the in the city and no no boundaries uh, how was the campus actually physically so yeah so the thing about tumspo is that i guess it has six or seven satellite campuses okay. and it has a main campus in paris mm-hmm. the satellite campus uh, i mean one of the satellite campuses is in luau mm-hmm. which is the euro asian campus mm-hmm. uh, and i was there so in terms of size not very big again i mean you could just like walk around the campus in like around 5 minutes so okay it's it's not big at all um the only the only good thing is that it used to be in front of a docking port because luau was a port city mm-hmm. so you could always see cruise liners or ships coming in and out from your windows so 
that, that was quite nice. <laughs> and uh, eventually it got boring. But <laughs> yeah, uh, initially it was nice. Uh, and in, uh, yeah. Okay. I mean, what, what was your other question? No, any, I mean, I was just asking about social activities or mm-hmm. anything that... Okay. Was, yeah. So social activities, there were a lot of social activities. Uh, mostly people were concerned about, um, I would say, social movements, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be for climate change, whether it be for calls for policy action against something or for something. And yeah, people used to keep themselves quite updated. I mean, you you could never ever expect a sciencebook student not to know what's happening in the political world. So people used to be quite updated with every second of progression. So um, yeah, people were quite active when it came to that. Um, otherwise, in terms of other activities, um, I don't actually remember. I've kind of forgotten because I didn't take part in a lot of them. Uh, I was actually like, you know, sort of integrating and then I was there with the course load and everything. So I didn't attend a lot, but I'm sure we had um, a lot of associations. Yeah. So you had different associations, whether it's uh, this art or uh, like BDE, this Elf, mm-hmm. or uh, like, you know, you have the sports association, the student uh how, how do you say that? Student Congress Association? Yeah. Uh, then you have the uh, the Trauma and the Arts Association. I mean, you have a lot of things going on, depending on your participation. Okay. Uh, I, I was more interested in finance and economics, so I just used to look at the Finance and Investment Club, uh, which was more of a finance and economics club because people were not really in, interested in investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of activities, you can, if you don't find your desired set of activities, you can just come up with anything and people would be more than happy to join you. Yeah. Okay, very nice. Okay, so um, did you, um, so your first two years, you, um, mm-hmm. you were pretty much there. Did you do anything different in summer or did you just... Um, continue through uh, course load. Right. So post my first semester, uh, I'm sorry, my first year, yeah. uh, you had the summer break yeah. and uh, we were supposed to pursue a civic internship mm-hmm. in any location of our liking. So that was a part of the Sionspo graduation requirement. Yeah. Um, I did, I did a civic internship for around one or one and a half months in India uh, as a part of the, you know, the uh, ECTS requirement. Yeah. Uh, and after that, I actually flew to Spain. So I flew to Madrid for my um, professional internship. Um, it was around, it, it was for around two months, around two months. Okay. Um, I, I pursued this uh, business development and data analyst internship at one of the startups. Mm -hmm. It was an event management company, Mm -hmm. more of a event management tech platform. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yeah, um, I used to teach myself like several courses on Coursera about data science and so on and so forth, marketing and everything. Those skills really paid off in the internship. And yeah, so that was there for two months. What did you do in the civic internship? What did you do in India? Uh, What was that? 
So this was a personal project mm-hmm. that I had undertaken uh, in consultation with one of the companies in Kolkata. So I think the name of the company was MDI Industries. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was under the CSR or the Corporate Social Responsibility Program of the company. Mm-hmm. And I was interested with organizing skill-based seminars for any student who was basically interested in coming in and getting to know what are the soft skill requirements for jobs these days or why don't you get jobs these days, yeah. uh, even though you have all the technical requirements. Um, yeah, it was a brief, I guess, three-week three, three week, uh, seminar session over like every alternate or every two days or so. Okay, so you finished this um, uh, gig in Madrid and then you uh, complete the rest of the, the second year, right? You start your second yeah. year. Um, yeah. And then what happens? I mean, you, uh, so the two-year program and then you had some choices to make, right? Right. So... In your second year, you have to specialize, Mm -hmm. and there are three options. Mm -hmm. The first being economics and societies. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second being, I guess, political. No, uh, I'm sorry. I think it's somewhere like humanities or something. Mm -hmm. I've forgotten the exact name. And the third was the political science. Mm -hmm. Uh, Of course, uh, I, of course, chose uh, economics. Yeah. Um, (laughs) The funny part that I remember was that I used to think that economics was something that I can easily handle. Uh-huh. And the first lecture completely threw me off. Uh, this was a course on behavioral economics. Uh-huh. And uh, our first session was about uh, the social welfare uh, function, the social choice theory. Mm-hmm. It was like so so very difficult to understand you know it's it's not something usual that you encounter in economics and behavioral economics yeah and altogether separate domain and it wasn't just me it threw everyone off people were like at the end of the class people were like what the actual <laughs> heck so i mean nothing like everything just passed over through their heads i mean over their heads yeah and uh, at the end of the lecture i still remember the professor exclaiming, you guys thought that you could just choose economics because you had to evade political science. Now you are going to realize that it was a very bad way of thinking about it. (laughs) And it was indeed a very bad way of thinking about it because I would say almost more than like uh, 50 or 70% of the class actually failed their final. Oh, really? Uh, yes. And uh, I, 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 just, I just wanted to like, have a broad overview whether microeconomics, intermediate microeconomics was that difficult or was it just because we were being uh, made to study something that's fairly advanced? Mm-hmm. And I, I surfed through the internet and of course I could see the pain of people exclaiming that why is intermediate microecons so difficult? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, it, it didn't help that it was quite a dense course uh-huh. and we were left with very little time. Like, it, it, 
I mean, you are not given sufficient time. You just need to complete it within a semester. Then there are frequent disruptions about closures or something. And then, like, the professors just try to, like, finish the course. Yeah. Now, that is, like, one of the things I do not really like because if things just pass over your head, there's no point in taking an exam. Yeah. Uh, but having said that, there were different ways to really progress throughout the course without any hitches like uh, group assignments and everything. I was sort of foolish not to take advantage of working with groups in terms of, uh, you know, like submitting the final assignment yeah. or the uh, regular assignments that we were given. And these were marked. And people used to, like, just ask seniors or other people and took help, which is why, like, towards the end, um, like, Almost everyone, except like 10 or 12 people, almost everyone was able to pass. But still, like um, 12 people not passing out of uh, like 45 or 60 or something, it, it's quite a high Yeah, it's quite a big number. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, besides the econ, you had to study sociology. Yeah. That was, that was a compulsion. And uh, I'm, I'm not trying to be very, like, you know, as a person who doesn't support uh, popular movements, I, I stand all for feminism. But the class on sociology of gender was quite boring mm. for me. Like I, I never liked it. And I had to almost force myself through to finish the class. Mm -hmm. I got good reviews for presentations and uh, group, I mean, class discussions and uh, tests. But... Uh, I, 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 would still, I would still say I was never a great writer yeah. or a person who would write a research piece. Uh, I tried my best, but I think I didn't really get good grades for my dissertation. So, yeah. I mean, <laughs> otherwise, I, I never wanted a research-based career in the first place. So, so now, um, so this is... Uh... You're nearing the end of the second year, then um, what, how did your jump to Emory come about? Yeah, so that's the most interesting part throughout the journey. Um, you had to actually apply. So what happens in the third year is that you are given two options. And this was introduced from my year onwards. Mm -hmm. So this was a new thing. Yeah, uh, It wasn't true for the previous years. Previous years were given just one option. You have to study all through the year. So both the semesters need to need to be spent at a single university abroad. But from my year onwards, there were two options. Either you can do what people have done in the past, or the second option being you could choose a hybrid year track. Mm -hmm. And a hybrid year track would consist of a semester-long study abroad followed by a semester-long internship. Mm -hmm. The conditions being that you cannot do any of these in France or your home country. So that brings forth a new challenge of finding internships in countries that are not known to you. Right. Right. Uh, so um, I would say even for the hybrid year, you had to file an application. Mm -hmm. and they used to look at your grades and everything. And if you qualified, they would give you the offer. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you would have to do the full year track. Um, I luckily qualified. I, I mean, you asked to sub, uh, submit a motivation letter and everything. So I guess that worked. And the problem was that since the hybrid year track was introduced like 
it was just introduced, mm-hmm. you only had a very narrow selection of universities. So I was just given a choice of 40 universities mm-hmm. that Inspo had agreements with for a semester-long study abroad program. Right. Uh, because with the rest, and by the rest, I mean more than 500 or 600 universities, yeah. Sionspo had like a single agreement. So it was just for a two-semester study abroad program or a year-long mm. study abroad program. Okay. And yeah, you file an application, you're selected, and then again, you have to f- uh, apply for the schools. Okay. So this was, I mean, this is one of the most stressful parts for any student because uh, you need to design a motivation letter for each of your six choices. And then you have to like have a very sound reason what you want to do, what subjects you want to study. So there's a lot of research going on uh, before the application period even begins. Mm-hmm. So after, after you are assigned the schools, uh, I'm, I mean, the admissions committee decides who goes where, sort of. Mm-hmm. Um, you are then asked to apply again to the university where you would be going. So it's like three applications for a hybrid year. Wow. Okay. And for a regular year, it's just two applications. Okay. So after, after you apply for Emory, the chances are quite high that the host university would not reject you yeah. because it's the, you know, your university's decision to send yeah. you there. Yeah. Uh, after that, you start applying for the visas and you kind of start doing all other administrative work. Yeah. In my case, when we were applying to the US, the administrative process had been delayed. So it was like running behind by almost two months. Mm-hmm. So we got our visas approximately less than 10 days before we were to depart okay. the States. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of stressful since I live in like Steel City, I have to go back and forth to Calcutta or like different procedures and yeah. formalities. Uh, quite tiring. Uh, I mean, I almost hate traveling now. Um, but yeah, after you're done with that, you basically depart for the States. I mean, that's it. Like, that's the end of the struggle there. Cool. So. And then yeah. once, once you're in... Um... So once you land in Emory, mm-hmm. um, what is your what are your impressions? I mean, you know, you've mm-hmm. been spent a couple of years in Paris um, at Sciences Po. Now here you are in a U.S. university. Right. Um, how was that transition like? What does that? In one word, it would be shocking. Okay. Why? Because. It, it was a huge campus. Like people used to say that Emory doesn't really have a huge campus. And I was like, no, this is too big because I'm, I'm not even used to walking like, you know, the distance that I had to walk from my dormitory to the student restaurant. Yeah. I mean, that would be almost like 10 times the distance I had to walk every day in Lugav. And uh, for me, for me, it was quite huge. Mm-hmm. Like the campus was really, really huge. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the student population, of yeah. course, it was again pretty, pretty huge. Yeah. Um, you, you cannot just uh, know like anyone, like everyone on campus, right. not anyone, right. but of course, like everyone. And yeah, shocking in that way. And uh, the fact that used to bother me really initially was uh, 
getting out from my house very early because we were accommodated on the Claremont campus, which used to be, I guess, relatively further than the other housing, uh, you know, the other housing facilities on campus. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, my lifestyle took a very serious turn, sort of. <laughs> I had to wake up early. I had to go and wait for the bus. And, you know, I had to follow the timings and everything pretty strictly. And there used to be quite a few days when I missed the bus and I had to take Uber to get to school somehow because it used to be very embarrassing to enter through the front door uh, <laughs> when the class has already begun because yeah. at Jonesboro, you could basically think through the back. There were two doors, which was yeah. the best yeah. part. Yeah. Uh, but at Emory, that was not an option. Uh, but if I have to come to academics, yeah, uh, like my career took a transition point. Um, what happened was that when you apply to Emory, um, you have a selection of courses that you can take. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem was that when you do make your selections, your selections are not audited. So you submit your selections and only like after one month or so, your selections are audited. You get a reply from Emory if you can register for these courses or not. Right. So I had registered for all data science courses uh-huh. and machine learning. And I received a reply back that your statistical skills are not sufficient because you just took like beginner statistics. And and that's kind of false because Sionspo used to label these courses as beginner statistics. And we used to like study everything that Emory taught me in a, uh, in a you know, like semester that used to be like half our semester. So mm-hmm. it was quite rigorous at Sionspo. But then because of the course names and because the descriptions didn't meet their requirements, they said, you know, you cannot do that. And you basically have to select different, I mean, other options. Yeah. And I was just left with uh, economics because uh, there are restrictions except sociology and economics. You cannot uh, register for three courses out of five that are outside your major. Yeah. So uh, I had to register for financial economics, money and banking. And I guess um, I've forgotten that. I mean, the last one was econometrics, yeah. Yeah. So uh, alongside, I took one module at uh, the Coseta Business School at, uh, with marketing. Yeah. And my last choice was uh, French because I had no other option yeah. after that. So it was at this point where my career sort of transitioned because initially I never was interested in uh, finance. So mm-hmm. when, I, when I began my financial econ classes, it was quite... Yeah, I mean, I'm just doing this because I have to. But as silly as it might sound, like the projects that were handed over to us were quite practical. Mm-hmm. So one of my uh, money and banking classes, like one of the projects was about uh, uh, analyzing a movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the name of the movie was Big Shot by Michael Lewis. Mm-hmm. And that that was changing my, I thought, really interested in... Uh, econometrics and the econometrics taught at Emory was of a fairly advanced level. Uh-huh. It's almost like PhD, pre-PhD, I would say. Yeah. So I was like, no, I'm, I'm sort of interested in investing as well. I would like to try that out. And from here on, my internship plans also underwent a change. I decided to look for more finance-centric internships for my second semester. Yeah. I ended up finding one in Buenos Aires uh, in a venture capital firm. Uh-huh. Uh, 
yeah but yeah i would say that the courses were so pragmatically focused and uh, the students were diligent very diligent uh they knew what they wanted to do quite early on which was a stark difference to sionspo uh the i mean the students used to be very active at emory i guess way more active than at sionspo relatively speaking mm-hmm. uh different clubs associations and so on and so forth and then applying to internships simultaneously with coursework so i think that's quite challenging and rigorous so yeah so overall you think your experience at emory was um was good was very good i i would i shouldn't be saying this but i, I think like relatively better than at sionspo okay well that's fair enough that's fair enough yeah <laughs> you finish your um, finish your semester at emory and then you take off your internship to buenos aires mm-hmm. um right and then what you spent 3 4 months there right so the transition from the states to buenos aires was not that smooth uh the reason being before i left india for united states i had already signed an internship contract with a coffee coffee rearing or something firm in colombia mm. so this colombia was in south america yeah um it was in medellin but i realized at the end of november uh, while i was in the states that they had canceled the contract and the contract was canceled because like one of the cfos had been involved in a scandal and all the incoming contracts were canceled like, okay i don't know if that was true or just a silly reason but yeah it was canceled so i had to stop my visa process midway for colombia yeah. had to cancel that yeah and now i was left in a very difficult condition um i just had like less than a month before i had to leave the states and i i mean i don't really have an internship i tried applying but then i wasn't very confident that i would get one within like less than a month so i booked my tickets for india uh in between these things somehow to a referral i was referred to this internship in uh, buenos aires i yeah. was like interviewed while i was in the states and um uh, the sad part is that when i asked for a refund for my ticket i didn't get anything so that was like $1000 down the drain uh this affected my budget as well because yeah. at emory i did not have to pay like tuition fees my sure. living costs were just about like you know the dorm and the food yeah. nothing else so um of course this was a setback to my financial budget so i had to plan everything very pragmatically i decided that buenos aires would also be relatively cheaper than going to europe or uh, any other location mm-hmm. um yeah and 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 the time after that was quite quite stressful i had my exams starting in the states my final semester exams and my uh, internship documentation i mean they both went hand in hand it was quite a stressful experience and uh, yeah but like somehow i made it before just one day of my departure to uh, like for buenos aires good sounds like a movie um so <laughs> so now you land in buenos aires and how was that internship was that 
Mm-hmm. Well, did that measure up to what you were looking for? Did you learn a lot? Of course. Uh, I, I would say it was relatively, again, one of the best internships I had. Yeah. Um, because supervisors knew that I was new to venture capital, let alone venture capital. I was new to private equity. Mm-hmm. And uh, they knew that I did not really have any previous uh, finance kind of experience. So they said, just take your time and uh, just focus on learning and then we can see if you can, you know, provide us any returns. So I had to review and do most of my work in Spanish, which was a which was sort of a compulsion and my Spanish skills were really not at par. I mean, I, mean, I was more of A2 or A1. Yeah. And uh, they didn't pressure me, but they encouraged me to go through, review everything in Spanish, try to understand it in Spanish, and then translate most of those investor reports to English. And mm-hmm. um, I was like, at first I was like, I cannot do that. And they were like, you can do that. Like, just try. And to add to this, they used to take me in investor meetings, like startup meetings, founder meetings, and all of these used to be conducted in Spanish. Yeah. And they would say, just try to listen as much as you can and don't try to write anything and try to just grab the gist of the entire meeting. Yeah. We don't want you to record everything statement by statement. And I was like, okay. The first few weeks, uh, I mean, I would say the first one or two weeks, I didn't understand anything mm-hmm. uh, except for a few keywords. Yeah. But after that, I realized that I actually started like understanding what the overview of the meeting was right so they were like you know if you do not train yourself if you just avoid the language you'll never learn and i said yeah it's true and <laughs> it was sort of like that at my workplace as well i started reviewing most of the you know the critical information uh, the confidential information i mean there was a lot of trust uh and i had to do my own research about uh, uh tech industry. So I covered fintech and uh, the job was to come up with trends, analyze reports, MA and everything, all sorts of analysis, top down, bottom up to come up with promising domains of investment within the fintech space. Yeah. So what sort of company should they focus on for their next fund, right? So uh, I would say it was quite, quite a learning experience sure. until like COVID, of course, took a took an ugly turn. So, yeah. Right. yeah. No, it sounds like um, you were thrown right into the fire, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you figured out things. And yeah. uh, it sounds like a great, great experience there. Looking back, um, mm-hmm. I commend this kind of path, Science Po, to... Uh, your advice be so in terms of like um, the students who want to go to Sciences Po yeah I mean you know based on your experience what would you recommend right so the first thing would be to research as much as you can mm-hmm. uh, if you've done your due diligence well then chances are pretty low that you would end up making a bad choice mm-hmm. um and in terms of research, do not just stick to websites, as mm-hmm. I did, but try to talk to people who have already like been through that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you would get a more fair idea of how dynamic things are because Sion Sport did change a few things quite frequently. Mm -hmm. uh, but still, people who knew or who had started there can give you a fair idea of what to expect. Mm -hmm. And second, if you are really interested in uh, economics, mm -hmm. and if you know economics is the only thing you wish to study, Sionspo might not be the best choice. Mm -hmm. But again, if you're interested in international relations, law, political science, and anything related to politics, Sionspo would actually be the best choice. Uh, the reason being not only the QS rankings that you see, mm -hmm. uh, I think Sionspo is one of the top three universities when it comes yeah. to political yeah. science. So, um, yeah, of course, and that's true. It does hold by its recognition. You have like really, really experienced professional who don't only teach you, but if you demonstrate like substantial interest, they are also ready to help you. So, yeah, help you in getting referrals, internships, and so on and so forth. You just need to be active. Um, but yeah, having said that, uh, try to, um, you know, be active in terms of integrating on campus. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I guess I was less active. <laughs> if I was more active, I guess my on-campus experiences would have been slightly better. But again, the language is one of the most important things that you shouldn't forget after all. And speaking French at a relatively like B1 or B2 level would, would help you, like it would tremendously help you. Uh, it would not only provide you with uh, a swift integration with the French people on campus, but also networking opportunities like throughout the city of Luau, even though the city is small, uh, you would be really surprised to learn that there are quite a number of people who are working in the startup space, um, be it tech or whatever. So you could as well develop a pretty good side gig if you want. Hi again. Hope you enjoyed this podcast with Udeshya Nigam. This is really a great example of a determined student who finds a path to study economics abroad given his constraints with impressive results. Hope the vivid descriptions of Sciences Po and Emory University motivate you to explore these universities further. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today. Transcripts for this podcast and previous podcasts are on almamatters.io forward slash podcasts. To stay connected with us, subscribe to Apple Podcasts Google Podcasts or Spotify or visit anchor.fm forward slash Alma Matters to check us out. Till we meet again, take care and be safe. Thank you.